Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is again Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. If you are joining us this morning, but were not here last week, we're picking up this morning where we left off last week in what became a very close reading of these six verses in Hebrews. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 are a critical turning point in Hebrews. The pastor is here transitioning from what has been primarily exposition to what will be primarily exhortation in the remainder of his sermon. In these verses, the pastor gives us three exhortations that encompass the totality of the Christian life. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So last week we began to look at the passage under the headings of those three exhortations, draw near, hold fast, and help one another. We covered much of the first exhortation last week. Let us draw near, the pastor says. We saw that what the pastor means is, let us draw near to God. We considered how the pastor gives us two bases for that critical exhortation. Two things we already possess, access and advocacy. Verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, or as I suggested, since we have authorization for entrance. Because of the life and death of Jesus Christ, we have access to the very presence of God. Our great salvation will be to enter these holy places eternally. We claim that same authorization now as we draw near. Verse 21 then told us we can draw near since we have a great high priest over the house of God. In other words, we have a perpetual advocate whose presence at the right hand of the Father intercedes effectively for us. Because our high priest is there, we know we will enter there ourselves in the future and that we can therefore draw near even now. Back in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, the pastor wrote, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Given our access and our advocate, we can indeed draw near to God. Near the end of the sermon last week, we said that drawing near means at least two things. That there's two ways we draw near to God. They are prayer and worship. Prayer is the drawing of our minds and our hearts near to God. And we saw how the scriptures at times describe prayer as a way of life. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Prayer is to be woven into the fabric of our daily lives as Christians as we draw near to God. Related to that is worship. 
The second way we said we are to draw near to God. Only here I don't mean simply worship on Sunday mornings. I mean again worship as a whole way of life. We worship God with our whole being in person. Again in Romans 12, Paul writes in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's that all of life responds to God that I think is what the pastor is getting at here in verse 22. And I say that because of the four guidelines the pastor provides, and this is where we left off last week. Four things about the condition we should be in as we draw near to God. Let us draw near, the pastor writes here in verse 22, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 22 describes the life of drawing near to God. We don't just draw near on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern time. It's all the time. Whatever it is you happen to be doing in your life in terms of vocation or activity, whether you're a bus driver or a painter or a homeschooling parent or a student or a lawyer or a professor or whatever in God's sovereignty it is that you do, it's all worship if the following four things are true of you day by day. First, we draw near with a true heart. True heart is a heart that functions as it is supposed to. It's a heart with, whose affections and priorities are in order. And out of those affections and priorities, we relate to God and to others with a characteristic sincerity. Why? Because the heart is at the center of our whole life. It's in the heart that God has worked a remarkable change if you're a Christian. That's at the core of the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Something happens to people, to you and me, when the new covenant opens up to include us within it. And it involves the heart, which means that from there it works its way into the rest of our personality and thinking and behavior and all the rest. Do you remember what the opposite of this looks like back in Hebrews 3? In Hebrews 3 and 4, we considered the wilderness generation, if you recall. Though they started out positively at the Exodus, that generation was soon grumbling, testing God, going astray, and in the end, they were prohibited from entering the promised land. And what was the issue? Do you remember? It was their hearts. Referring to that negative example, the pastor says in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, the very opposite of drawing near. 
An evil heart is by definition a heart of unbelief that turns away in disobedience. The true heart is the opposite of that. It's a heart attuned to God, ready to obey him. It's a heart that's been examined by the word of God. Remembering what the pastor says in chapter 4, verse 12, about the word being living and active and discerning the intentions of the heart. The true heart is the heart upon which God has written his laws. It doesn't mean a person with a true heart never sins. We know that, and the pastor knows that. But it is to say that there has been a fundamental reorientation of the heart if we're followers of Jesus, and sin, therefore, just cannot hang around for long before we deal with it. We will not go on sinning deliberately, as the pastor will say in verse 26 in our text next week. To draw near requires a true heart. Secondly, the pastor exhorts us to draw near in full assurance of faith. You could translate that in faith's full assurance. In the assurance or the conviction that faith brings. It's a subtle point, but it's significant, I think. The idea here is not that the pastor wants us to somehow make ourselves feel confident or sure, or, God forbid, to act as though we're confident when that's not how we feel. This kind of assurance isn't something that we're supposed to just drum up from inside ourselves somehow when we want to. The idea is that it emerges from the true new covenant heart. What emerges from such a heart is the robust confidence of faith out of which we live our whole lives. Again, not perfectly and not flawlessly. We'll spend plenty of time in Hebrews chapter 11 in the weeks and months ahead, so this will come up a lot. But I'll say here what I've said also in the past at Christ the King. Faith is trusting in God's promises for the future in response to God's provisions in the past. That is what the soon-to-be-described faithful members of Hebrews 11 we're all about, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not that we have to figure out how to feel assured and convicted or convinced. It's that we draw near in faith's full assurance. Because faith isn't built on some vague sense of longing for things to be better. Faith isn't wishful thinking or grasping for straws in the darkness. Faith is in response to God's provision in the past. And what else could be the point of all of Hebrews but that God has provided it all in his son? You and I are now to live by faith. We are to live lives that obey God now. We are to draw near in the full assurance of faith now, because with true hearts we see all that God has done in the past, especially in the cross of Jesus, our high priest. And that's what gives us confidence in God's promises for the future. As one commentator puts it, 
such fullness of faith is based on the proven faithfulness of God and results in obedient surrender to his gracious purposes. The pastor urges his hearers to draw near to God with such obedient confidence and singleness of purpose. Thirdly, then, we are to draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, the pastor says. Only here again, dear friends, the idea is not that we somehow bring about the cleansing of our hearts any more than we can make our hearts true or make ourselves have faith's assurance. The pastor here is describing what is actually the case for we who know the Lord on the basis of the new covenant Jesus has inaugurated, the new and living way that we talked about last week. This takes us right back to chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, where the pastor says that if the blood of goats and bulls sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This was the great effect of the sacrifice of Jesus. His blood has the power to wash every stain of every sin from the conscience. You bear it no more. That means we're forgiven, yes. It also means we're released from guilt for past sins. It also means we are freed. Freed to serve the living God in our lives. To draw near to God. And actually, to see this even more clearly, let's go ahead and bring in the fourth element that's there in verse 22. The pastor exhorts us to draw near with our bodies washed with pure water. Now, plenty of commentators through history have seen here a reference to baptism. I think that is probably in view in some way, but I'm convinced that there's more to it than just that, and that this connects to the sprinkling of the heart that we just talked about. The language in verse 22 of washing goes back to the Old Covenant, of course. When members of the Old Covenant were required to wash themselves for ritual cleanliness. But in keeping with the overall message of Hebrews, the point here has to be that rather than ritual washings, which never truly cleansed people before God, the pastor here describes the cleansing that is ours in the New Covenant. I go with an interpretation of this passage that has as its key the backdrop of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. If you're quick about it, you can turn back to Ezekiel 36 if you want, but we won't stay long there. I think the pastor is using vocabulary here at the end of verse 22 that we find in Ezekiel's great new covenant promise. Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant prophecy that gets quoted in Hebrews twice, in fact. But alongside it, in terms of significant Old Testament texts about the new covenant, has to be Ezekiel chapter 36. We won't go into the context of that chapter now. Just listen to the promise that begins in verse 25 of Ezekiel 36, the Lord speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you. 
you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel promised that in the new covenant, God would sprinkle them, meaning their whole body and self, from all their uncleannesses with clean or pure water. He will give them a new heart. And you can debate and commentators debate about how all this lines up and whether the heart's being sprinkled clean and the body's being washed here in Hebrews 10 are describing two different things. But the bottom line is I read it in light of that Ezekiel passage is that I don't think so. I think it's all of a piece. I think what the pastor is describing here is an inner transformation of the heart that expresses itself in the changed conduct of the body. I think the body washed with Ezekiel's pure water represents the life of obedience that is the expression of a heart that's been cleansed from the evil conscience and inscribed with God's law. In other words, the point is that the pastor is describing a total cleansing. It's our hearts and our bodies it encompasses everything, our motivation, our attitudes, our behavior. If baptism is in view here at the end of verse 22, maybe we could simply say that the point isn't in the baptism itself, but in that which the baptism symbolizes, the renewal that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our whole life. In the end, however we go with it, we can't miss the point. This is what characterizes the man or woman who draws near. Because of all Christ, our high priest has accomplished for us. Our hearts are true. Our faith brings assurance. Our whole self is washed and ready to run the race set before us. Let us draw near, the pastor says. The pastor's second exhortation is then found in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, the pastor urges, for he who promised is faithful. Now, I think this exhortation, along with the third one, are practical ways in which the drawing near to God takes place in our lives. Whereas the first exhortation was preceded by two bases for drawing near, here in this second exhortation, the basis for it is in what follows. We are to hold fast the confession, the pastor says, for he who promised is faithful. So it will help our understanding of, of that to which we are to hold fast, the confession of our hope to first give consideration to what it has, what, what it is that has been promised. For he who promised is faithful, Pastor explains. Well, promised what? Well, surely by now we cannot read a word like promise and not think back to all that we've seen already in Hebrews. 
The content of this promise isn't uncertain. It's salvation. It's life with God in a place. It's the promise that has remained the promise since Abraham. It's everything we talked about back in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Remember all this? Then in verse 17 of chapter 6, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Yes, he who promised is faithful, and the pastor has been showing us how we know that. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Of course, he who promised is faithful. That's what the whole book of Hebrews has been about. We have a great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, the Son of God. So what's the hope? Well, we just read about it in chapter 6, verse 18. It's the hope set before us that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The hope is our full and final salvation, brothers and sisters. It is an objective reality, and we are going there. As one commentator explains, hope is the sure promise of eschatological joy for those who persevere to the end. Since our faith is in a God who has promised, that faith is always directed toward what he has promised. You see? That's our hope. The pastor here does not mean so much that we are to have a hopeful confession. He means we have a confession which itself has as its logical ending point or its implication a specific hope. The hope of glory that will be our lived reality at the return of Jesus Christ when he will appear to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The hope is the reward that's been sought by all the faithful, as we'll see in chapter 11. Which then makes it even more interesting, I think, to think about what the pastor tells us we're supposed to do here, right? We just miss the mark a bit if all we end up with, as we try to summarize verse 23, is that the pastor is saying, be hopeful. Well, sure, but that doesn't capture it. It's more specific than that. The pastor says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The word confession probably refers to a summary of Christian doctrine that would have been known and used by the hearers of Hebrews. We've had this come up twice before. In chapter 3, verse 1, the pastor wrote, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In chapter 4, verse 14, he said, 
since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. Well, now, at this juncture of Hebrews, the point seems to be that the pastor's teaching that has been all about Christ's high priesthood, the heartbeat of his whole exposition, this teaching has reinforced the confession in such a way that to affirm it is to focus on the great hope that Christ our high priest will bring about. The sufficiency of all Christ has done, so carefully explicated by the pastor over nine plus chapters, the sufficiency of all Christ has done guarantees his return for your salvation, you see? The pastor can rightly say that their confession centers on this hope. Because to confess Christ is to hold fast to the hope God has promised. That's why the Son came into the world, is it not? To bring about the promise of the Father. Now, there's surely more involved here than simply us saying the words of the confession or a confession. It, it's something that has to be believed from the heart for it to be truly held fast without wavering. One commentator suggests that the language of holding fast the confession seems to convey the idea of contemplating it, cherishing, understanding more deeply what has been confessed. But let me suggest to you that while holding fast the confession likely does mean more than just publicly proclaiming the faith, it cannot mean less than that. I don't know the exact reason why the Christians receiving this sermon needed an exhortation to hold fast their confession without wavering. Perhaps their identification with the church had raised the threat of persecution, as the pastor seems to imply later on. The point is to persevere, to draw near to God in this life now, they had to continue holding fast the confession as they gathered together. It's no different for us. Perhaps what causes us to waver isn't exactly the same thing as it was for them. Maybe it is. But the urgent exhortation is the same. We must hold fast the confession of our hope. We must do it together. For six years, when I was in college and graduate school, I sang in a choir at my church. I loved it. It was a large church. And there, as part of the choir, I got to sit in the, in the choir loft of the sanctuary, from which I could then look out over the whole congregation. And the thing I remember that still stands out most clearly in my mind from those great years is the bracing and beautiful moment in the service each week when the pastor, it wasn't an Anglican church, but when the pastor would summon the congregation to stand to affirm our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. And sitting there, I would look out and find that the strength of the congregation's confession was strengthening my own. 
and setting my focus squarely each week on the hope we have in Jesus Christ. I mean, we say it now every week in morning prayer, don't we? It's the same we say in the Nicene Creed in communion services, but we've gotten used to the Apostles' Creed now. May we never grow tired of it, but rather draw strength from it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Finally, then, we come to the third as we see what it means to draw near to God in our everyday life of faith, we come to the third of the pastor's exhortations in verse 24. Not only must we draw near in faith with our whole being in life, hold fast to hope through the confession, we must help one another to love. And let us consider how to stir up one another, the pastor continues, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This time, rather than providing any explicit bases for why we can carry out this exhortation, the pastor provides us with the means for doing it. Verse 24 is the exhortation. Verse 25 is the means and the bottom line is that you and I are to encourage one another in the life of love. Only we kind of easily miss some of the pastor's meaning here, I think, because there's something in this text that's hard to bring out in the English. Rather than directly exhorting us to think about ways to stir up one another here, the pastor literally says, we must consider one another. This verb, consider, it appeared earlier in Hebrews, way back in chapter 3, verse 1, where the pastor urged his brothers and sisters to consider Jesus, to look at him, to think about him, to focus on him. Well, the grammar in chapter 10, verse 24, is actually the same. You just don't see it in the English translation. But this time, the pastor says we are to consider one another. Literally, that's what it says. The direct object of the verb consider is one another. Consider one another. Now, that's not how it's translated, because then the rest of the sentence makes the English sound too awkward. But to get the sense of the rest of it would require that it would be translated something very woodenly like this. Consider one another. Take thought of one another. Focus on one another. Be concerned about one another. Consider one another for the stirring up of love and good works. Something like that. Consider one another toward the stirring up of love and good works. I mean, it's very awkward in the English. But maybe the point becomes a little clearer because then we see that the pastor's core exhortation here is, in fact, to consider our brothers and sisters. The desired outcome of that considering 
is to stir one another up to love and good works. But the point is, it takes a deep mutual concern for one another to do that, you see. The pastor would draw his hearer's attention first to their sisters and brothers, rather than to the act of stirring up. The idea is that when we take time to consider and focus on one another, what begins to happen is that we want to help one another. We reflect on how we can speak or act or care for another brother or sister so as to spur them on to love and good work in their lives. Without needless prying, we should give thought to the condition of those around us. And then having done that, we are to live and talk and act in a way that stirs up that other person, that provokes, literally, or stimulates them in a godly way. Is a brother or sister doubting? Is he discouraged? Is she tempted? How will you help? It's not easy to nail down precisely what this involves. I realize it's not precise. Every situation is different. As one author says, where such stirring up exists, it will be a craft and an art. But given the way the pastor writes this sentence, here's what it isn't. Here's what this isn't. It isn't just meddling. And it isn't being some kind of judgmental busybody in the church who goes around just poking others by focusing on things you don't happen to like. I mean, the whole way in which we do this isn't by acting in some sort of superior, off-putting, holier-than-thou kind of a fashion. Pastor is careful to say that whatever we say or do is first to be rooted in a relationship of genuine concern and care for each other. We are to consider one another. If we are to stir up in the way that the pastor intends, we will first need to take the time to love. Desiring the perseverance of our brothers and sisters in faithfulness, what we are to long for is to see them running well. So here's a quick question to assess whether this is the way we think or not. What do we, what do you, what do you long for in the lives of your brothers and sisters at Christ the King? What do you most want for them? What the pastor is saying is that what we are to most want for others in the church is that they find victory over sin in their lives, right? Do you think like that? We should desire that they be free from dead works to serve the living God, to exhibit good works or works of goodness, really works of love. Love and good works here. In the translation, this is not a description of two different things. Love is the mark of Christian discipleship. 
rather than being merely some kind of feeling, just a feeling or an emotion, the point is that love manifests itself in good works. When we love God and love our neighbor, that love shows up in our lives, in the things we do and say, in our loving good works. Later in chapter 13, verses 1 to 6 in Hebrews, the pastor will describe such good works. They're deeds of brotherly love, hospitality, concern for the suffering, sexual purity, generosity. The hearers of Hebrews have practiced such things in the past. He would have them continue to stir one another up to continue in such behavior, and he would have you and I do the same thing. So before we look at the final verse of our passage, let's ask ourselves some questions. Do we spend time, I mean any time at all, <laughs> thinking about others at Christ the King in this way? Does our, does your mental activity during the week include thinking about a brother or sister and how they're doing. That we, you might understand where they need to be encouraged towards love and good works. Are we even the kind of people who can do what the pastor is telling us to do, to stir up others in the way that he intends? Because it's not easy to love well, is it? It takes time. It takes thoughtfulness. It takes energy. Are we willing to give those things? Looking at it from the other direction, is the way you live and talk and act going to be provocative in the best way? Do you naturally stir up others to love and good works by who you are or not? Does your example and your conversation lead others to see the work of the Spirit? Again, nobody's perfect. But do people see that you do live for the promises of God? You do hold on to those promises more than you hold on to anything else that this world says is desirable. If so, then I think stirring up can be as simple as a well-timed, thoughtful word to another when that other person knows you love them and knows that you long for them to walk faithfully with the Lord. But how will that happen? What are the means for carrying out this final exhortation to help one another as we draw near to God in our lives? Verse 25 gives us the two basic elements as we close. Let us consider how to stir up one another. The pastor writes, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I mean, the first thing is that we have to meet together. There's no way we're going to be able to consider one another when we have no idea what's going on in the lives of others. Right? And where are we going to find that out? Well, when we meet together. For worship, like we are now, yes. We have post-service fellowship for a reason. But it's not just that. 
Certainly one of the most important kinds of encouragement and stirring up that we receive week by week is from the word of God that's rehearsed in the liturgy of our service, proclaimed in the sermon, yes. But if the meeting together that the pastor has in view here in verse 25 is the key to carrying out his exhortation in verse 24, it must also include time spent knowing one another. That's part of what's supposed to happen on Sundays. Certainly in the early church, when they gathered for meals and had extended times together, this was the case. It's obviously a lot easier to do when we're meeting in person. It's one of the chief, chief painful parts of our current existence on Zoom. But Sundays are not the only time. And we are not prevented from doing this even now. For example, our small groups at Christ the King are designed for this. Are you part of what? There can be other ways we meet with one another as well. The point is, I urge you to take seriously this exhortation. Those who neglect or abandon other believers, leave them in the lurch and deprive them of needed support. You and I need that support too. We must not do that. We need one another to persevere in love and good works. Because what is it that's supposed to be happening when we meet together? What's the key to stirring up one another to love and good works? It's encouragement. We are to encourage one another. Encouragement requires coming alongside other people. Coming alongside with words and actions that will strengthen them in Christ. It may mean bearing a load of some kind for another. It may mean prayer companionship, or simply sharing from your own conviction that God is faithful based on your experience and that other brother or sister can hold on. It could mean a number of things, but this much is clear. One of the essential means by which Jesus Christ guides and protects his people as we draw near to God is through the active participation of other believers in our lives. The day of Christ's return is fast approaching, dear friends. Knowing that, let us give thought not just to ourselves, but to others. Let us consider one another. Draw near in faith. Hold fast to hope. Help one another to live in love. This is the Christian life, dear friends. May such faith, hope, and love define the pattern of our lives for however much time is given us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.